1: Hey everyone, uh, we haven't done a deep end podcast in a while. So a deep end podcast typically is when Danielle and I do a show where we have some sort of topic that we want to take a depth slash Theological, religious kind of perspective on, and we typically air it on both of our shows. So this one will air on a thousand names for God, as well as the Embodied podcast with Danielle McGinnis. Also, we have our book club coming up. This is our third, fourth, fourth, fourth book club coming up, and I think we've like really started to figure out how to do it best, like mm-hmm. how to how to do it so it sort of at least works for us. And the way that we do it is we pick the book, and then you and I, well, so each section, each month, we have to, we read a certain section, and then we meet at the end of the month to talk about that. And then in order to get the conversation going, you and I typically do a podcast
0: beforehand like like a personal podcast so everybody in the book club can listen to our musings so it's something akin to a deep end type of conversation
1: yeah and yeah something like this really
0: yeah you will get access to that emailed to you and then with that you can kind of bring your musings into combination with our musings and then bring that into the book club and then the conversations in the book club are often like extremely fruitful and it's just really refreshing to be surrounded by people who are interested in talking in a way that encapsulates depth and it's just really great
1: yeah i notice like with our book clubs and like with the workshops i've done there's you know, there's like a certain kind of magic that happens when complete strangers get together to talk about things that are important to them. And like sometimes we don't even talk about the book, to be quite honestly. The conversation always typically goes where it has to go. Mm. Uh, and it's yeah. it's pretty cool to witness. So if you guys are interested in that, we are doing... Robert Johnson was a depth psychologist, psychoanalyst from uh, the Jungian school. I mean, he went through...
0: He went through... Uh, analyst training. So he was a Jungian analyst, scholar, writer. Um, And the books that we are going to do, books, we're going to do two books this time because they're really short, um, about 90 pages each. So um, we're going to do he and she. Um, He wrote those books. And those books really take a depth psychological perspective on masculine psychology and feminine psychology through studying myths so the parsifal myth so the grail myth and then the myth of psyche and eros Mm -hmm. um and so i'm really excited because this is we were kind of like oh should we do this kind of undecided about it but it's so i don't know it's so rich to have a conversation that includes symbols and myth and story and i'm so excited because this is the first book club that we've actually done something that's not hyper psychological so we'll see how it goes but i think it's going to be super exciting
1: yeah he has been really impactful for me like this will be my fourth time going through it fourth or fifth i think fourth um yeah, it was a, It came at like when, the first time you sent it to me. I, I remember going through it. Like, really was super impactful. But it's one of those books that has so much depth, even though it is so short, that you kind of have to read it over and over to kind of like understand it. So I think that doing it in this setting where we unpack it will be really cool.
0: Yeah. So if you're interested in joining us, we are going to start on November fourteenth, um, and so you can go to the link in the show notes of this podcast. And secure your spot. It's pay as you wish, so um, it's basically donation based. So whatever you want to pay to join, I think you have to at least pay a dollar to get on the the list. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, go ahead and sign up. We'd love to see you there.
1: Cool. So today we're going to talk about the phenomena. I don't know if you guys remember this. It was big. I mean, you were saying that you remember it from when you were a kid. Yes, yeah, because so- I was like raised in a church, right? Like, I mean, I was raised in a very church setting. Like, we went to church three times a week, and it was very, um, it was like very much part of our world. And I remember the like phenomena, the the WWJD acronym being uh, put on bracelets and stickers, and I just remember it everywhere. And it kind of died out, you know. And I always i've wondered like what is responsible for it dying out and i think part like the first thing that i want to say is i don't i don't know how to tackle this how to start but i think the first thing to say is that like we tend to take religious teachings and make them suit our lifestyle rather than trying to take our lifestyle to mold it into religious teachings or into a wisdom path we tend to do the opposite like how do we exist in this world here in modernity? And then how do we just take out of it what we want? And so I think because of that, that's where you get things. And people that listen to my show know I talk about this a lot, but that's where you get things like the prosperity gospel, right? Where um, you no longer ask G- what Jesus would do. You ask what you ask him for what you want, right? Mm-hmm. So he takes on this sort of like Santa Claus type element. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if you were to i i don't know but i think that if you were to uh survey most of the people in this country they would and they were to describe god they would describe something that was a combination between like zeus and santa claus Mm. and so i think part of like just the way that our god image has formed over time the wwjd thing sort of like falls on deaf ears i really i have a lot to say about it but Want to, I want to start with, like, what are your initial thoughts on this?
0: Well, I'm listening to a book. Um, it's called Origins and Histories of Consciousness by Eric Neumann. Um, and it's, it's basically this really... It's very complex. I tried to read it, and I, like, got to, like, 60 pages. And I was like, oh, I'll Me try an yeah. audio book and see if that resonates. And it, it definitely did. I, had like, waited a year to try it again. Um but he, in the part that I'm in, he's talking about development of consciousness at this point. At the beginning of the book, he talks a lot about just like creation myths and like all of the unconscious dynamics of creation. And he's at the point now in the book where he's talking about like ego formation and in the development of consciousness itself. And he's mentioning about how this it's really important for the ego to be able to um, personify and create an image of what is in the unconscious at a certain level of consciousness. But there's there's a step that needs to occur where that image can't just exist in projection. So meaning we can't just project that image onto a screen in the sky and think that like God lives up there and doesn't also exist in the psyche and the body Mm. in our being. And so I think the development of consciousness, the more, and I've seen this with my clients too, um, this shift, and it's, it's not explicit. They don't necessarily say it, But we've talked about this kind of shift from this this God that like it's based on expectation and projection and desire. And it transforms as they organically go through the process of doing their own healing work to this embodied experience of feeling held and within something greater than themselves. So I think that's what comes up for me is this this stage of consciousness that happens when we do our quote-unquote inner work um, that I think organically starts to bring the God from an outside image to an internal experience.
1: Mm. Um, yeah. So I think that sounds like the impulse that's behind the the asking the question of what Jesus would do, right? Because it takes it from a disembodied God, this this God that's like up in the sky somewhere, who's making demands of you, to know I have to actually walk that path.
0: Well, yeah, like let's play with that a little bit. Like, what would Jesus do? So when you ask a question like that, and you sit with that and like really contemplate that, well, there's a couple things that are happening. It's like, well, what did Jesus do? Right what did jesus embody and then it's like what do i do and what do i embody and so there's like kind of this like creating this tension of opposites and typically when that happens in the psyche that's creating a space for higher consciousness to organically form Mm -hmm. so i think it is that is a great kind of thing that you just said there is like it's asking a really great question.
1: Right. But it's interesting because then when you find yourself in the tension of these opposites, right? M- most people retreat from that experience and so get stuck at certain like points of their life, certain like evolutions of their god image get stuck because they can't they can't continue on and take those opposites internally. Let me um well, you know, so I think a lot about culture and Richard Dawkins talks about the fact that we have like a meme centric culture and I think this is the most it's so helpful to understand because you know you think about today like all how many activists are in the world it's like a lot of people I think are going to die without having done one single thing in the world because we've mistaken creating memes about something and posting about something with actually doing something Mm. because actually doing something is so much more difficult it's so much tougher but if you think about an archetype as like a pattern of reality, right, that's dynamic, that can show up in multiple different like, situations and circumstances and cultures, it's dynamic, it's ever-changing. And so it shows up in all of these different places. And then if you take that archetype and you look at it at just one particular point in time and you just freeze it, now it's a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And if you take a picture of that or write a blurb about it, now it's a meme so we're mm. so far removed from the patterns of reality that we're called to embody and to be within and we are mistaking the sort of this the the picture of something for the thing itself and mm. that's really fascinating to me because like we were talking this morning when we were just kind of like shooting the shit about this episode and talking about what it might look like when you think about the WWJD phenomena being a bumper sticker right that's like the ultimate it shows the ultimate sort of schism between the embodiment of something and the meme culture that we live in because what jesus would do was is die the most brutal ruthless death in sacrifice to his enemies right In sacrifice to this greater good and now that's like a bumper sticker
0: so it's interesting because i've talked about this on my podcast a couple times but it's really been a profound thing that I've like come across in James Hillman's writing about the difference between reflective consciousness and creative consciousness and like reflective consciousness is just asking, simply asking the question, like what would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. Right. And then based on what, what you're weighing internally, you're using like discrimination and understanding to like see how that fits in your life. But creative consciousness is a little bit different because creative consciousness is also um, taking into account when you ask that question, what is working through you at that time? Like what is your experience of asking that question? So then it leaves space for the archetype to enter, right? So maybe you get anxiety, right? Or maybe you get completely triggered and pissed, Right. Well, what what is that? Hmm. So you're you're starting to interact with the dynamism of the question itself, and the interaction and the action with it's not just this passive knowing. It's this creative wrestling, right? And like that's so prominent in the Bible, wrestling with God, right? right? And like I mean,
1: that's the meaning of Israel.
0: Yeah, right. and so
1: one who wrestles with God. It's
0: I think it's really important for us to not just be a reflective culture. We and I think this is where activism kind of messes misses the mark. They become sinners, right? Is like they think by doing something that's frozen in time, like you said, like a stereotype, that it's actually engaging the archetype, and it's not. Hmm. And I think that if we're really engaging with archetypes. It's taking every single moment of the reflective experience and acting as if it's telling us something. It's adding to the reflection. So say you sit down to meditate and there's like this complete distraction. You want to be on your phone. You want to be somewhere else. What is that, right? If that was an energy. How would you describe it? If that was an emotion, what, would, what emotion would that be? And this is where you can start getting into archetypal um, understandings because typically there's patterns there. And when you can understand your patterns and notice that this particular pattern plays itself out when you go to meditate, then it's like, oh, it starts to take a shape. And it's like, oh, I have this Dionysian impulse to do something else. So it's like, it's, I think it's, it's just a different type of interaction with the question itself.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the hard part is like, it's an interaction. It's not, you know, I don't know, even the way that we pray, I think like in our culture is very much like, it doesn't, it's not like you give yourself to something um like I noticed when I started a contemplative path my whole life I was the way that I would pray is like I essentially just like have this list of things that I'm just gonna talk I'm gonna say in my mind you know Mm -hmm. um but the contemplative prayer is isn't you don't say anything actually you just sort of open your heart to silence and notice what archetypes come in and notice what happens right and sometimes it's like so overwhelmingly painful you can't bear it for another moment um feels like it's going to crush you and i think that and so yeah i think that our our the superficiality of our culture doesn't it just didn't there wasn't there's not enough space in our lives for archetypes to really move through us and for us to make the the really, really tough decisions to, to like, quote-unquote lose our life so that we can gain it, right? Well, I
0: think that's actually interesting because I think that's because of fear. The Mm -hmm. fear of the confrontation of the archetypal experience, right? So what's coming into that space we're afraid of. We're Mm -hmm. afraid to meet whatever that is. And so we deny its existence at all. So when we deny the things that we're afraid of, the unknown that is like influencing us and moving through us if we deny that and move in one direction that is in complete denial of the unconscious and the unknown it's like but then you see fear play itself out the farther you go into the denial and i think you see this in modern religions right you move are you following not
1: really but just keep going
0: Well, it's interesting because what's in, like for that contemplative thing, right? You said the most excruciating pain that you could ever imagine, right? Mm -hmm. Most people are afraid to like really be in that space because it does something to their body. Mm -hmm. Like their body starts to get activated and that's scary for a lot of people, right?
1: Totally. And so
0: it's really scary to be in those places because it feels like you're going to be consumed by the unknown, Mm -hmm. the unconscious. Right, right. And so what we do is we say, well, that doesn't exist, right? And so we change the method so that it excludes confronting the fear.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And then the more that we play that out, the exclusion and the denial of that existing at all, you see it flip on itself and then these people are using fear to propagate the message. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Where does that come from? I think it's the complete exclusion of it in the first place. It's like a perversion of the whole point.
1: Mm. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. Um, Because, like, one of the things I think that's coming up for me while you're saying this is that, you know, in our culture, we have to have a way of, we resist any way of dethroning the ego. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and what you're describing is the experience of dethroning the ego. And it's interesting because and and like allowing yourself to sort of be consumed by that, right? By that unconscious and, and to like actually go into it without the protection of your personal will. And mm-hmm. it, the interesting thing about that is that in the what Jesus would do phenomena, it's like, well, I think if you're really reading the gospels not just the canonical Gospels either, if you're you're Gnostic Gospels, whatever, but if you're reading the Gospels, I think that you get to a place where you realize that what Jesus did was prayed for the will of God, and then when he realized that the will of God was going to kill him in the most shameful, excruciating way possible, he prayed for the strength to bear that will. And that, for us, is like, We have this. I mean, we've done podcasts before where we talk about the importance of personal will Mm -hmm. um, and how how at some point I think our evolution is going to ask us to sacrifice that personal will, and I think that's I think that's the one of the most important messages of the Christ myth. Um, But
0: can we uh, jam on something that I think is really important in there? Yeah, that I've been like I think I've mentioned it to you just in passing is. You know, like after Jesus is like kind of died on the cross, right? They put him in this tomb, right? And like, I don't, I haven't studied theology or Christianity enough to know what that, what they think that symbolizes. The tomb? Yeah. But like, my understanding of that is like this really mother archetypal energy because yeah,
1: like, the tomb predates christ right yeah he it, was a human being like if we're talking about the man jesus from nazareth right he was a human being and so he him being put in a tomb is indicative of him being human
0: but i think that there's something about going back into the great mother into the womb and tomb of great mother to be reborn. And I think that that hits on what you were just saying is we, I think it's because our inability to be in the body. Like Mm -hmm. it's a very terrifying experience to meet powerful archetypes while still being embodied. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the Jesus story of being, kind of pushed back into the great mother to be reborn because that's where the rebirth archetype happens Uh is through this great mother. And it's like, I mean, if you look at that, or like really contemplate on what that means, it's like, I think it's something akin to, can you kind of suffer so that your egoic will can die to the will of something greater than you? And in that process go into this tomb to be regenerated and to be something higher Mm -hmm. to have a higher consciousness right i I don't know that's just really profound
1: yeah i talked about that on my show for the listeners that are hearing this that listen to a thousand names for god i talked about this idea of the cult pre-cultures predating the uh hebrew world we're finding a lot of like evidence of goddess worship and and evidence of where that tomb came from, which is exactly what you're saying. The tomb was this idea that we go back into Gaia, back into mother to Mm -hmm. be reborn. And it's interesting because in a lot of ways, as we're talking about this, the Jesus story is like, it's the ultimate, I mean, in every way, it's the ultimate sort of embodiment of sacrificial love, but embodiment itself is a sacrifice. Right. This is like Mm -hmm. something I think in our culture, something I particularly in my own psychological formation have had trouble with, which is being embodied. Because if you're embodied, you're giving up the chance to be everything. You're giving up potential. You're like, because to be embodied itself is to accept a finite role. Yeah, your
0: limitation, your
1: limitations. Right. And so and, and there's nothing more finite than being embodied. Right. Because in the, old, in the whole cosmos, you're not any of that.
0: But it's interesting because I think it opens up the experience of this world, too. Yeah. At, at the same, that's why it's paradoxical, because it is finite, but it makes, it's, it's interesting because I think we have this, like, fear of death. But we don't recognize how many of us are going through life with with just this massive amount of deadness in your body. Hmm. And Can I think you say more about that, what do you mean? Well, I think it's it is through the practice of learning to be more in your body that that sense of I've seen this so many times with not only myself but my clients when you take the time and space to learn how to uh, suffer with what's happening in your body, it opens space so that aliveness can enter mm. and like, what is aliveness? Like, where does that come from? Right. Where does like the soul of aliveness come from? Arguably, probably God. Works Right. So it's like, well, if you are embodied, it, it's, it's kind of like one of those things, again, we don't want to do it because we're afraid, but then that ends up leading to these lives where we feel dead inside. Mm. But if we, if we suffer through it consciously, then it opens up space for aliveness that has been given to us by God to enter. That that is where God enters, and you create start to create that closer relationship between what used to be an externalized projected image because it was too much for the ego to to handle. Mm-hmm. It is through that process of embodiment that I think that it enters.
1: Yeah, and so that's interesting because that's precisely what we give up if we when we give up the WWJD phenomenon, right? Is that opportunity like we stay in our ego God stays out there somewhere Mm
0: -hmm. right
1: but then the what we give up is the vitality and the aliveness that you're talking about right I mean because if you think about it uh, the idea that's coming to me like the thing that's coming to me is like when you live in this way where your ego is fortified and separate from God from the world from everything else Mm -hmm. you end up in this place that's like somewhat dark and somewhat um dead like there's not there isn't any vitality there right so
0: but it's interesting because from a from hillman's perspective right i've kind of had this conversation with you well actually love is there in the darkness it is the force that's moving you through that darkness and when we separate ourselves from capital l love archetypal love Mm-hmm. The possibility of our aliveness re-entering after this darkness, when we separate from that, that's where um, what Donald Kalsched calls dis, the devil, the fallen angel, enters and convinces us that this whole life is pointless. You become apathetic, and like all of this darkness just consumes you, right? Mm. But I think it takes a understanding of like it's kind of that like cliche, like this is happening for me. And that's a really privileged thing to say because some people are truly suffering. Mm. But it's interesting when I'm working with clients, I'll like bump into their devil that's like convincing them that like there's no hope, Mm. like absolutely no hope. And I think that's a lot of my work in the world is to kind of confront that, help them confront that and like disrupt that and say, no, wait, 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 is that, is that really true? And oftentimes there's like this spark of divinity within the person that I'm working with. And they're like, no, I know that's not true. And I'm like, where is that? Where do you know that? Mm -hmm. And finding that wherever there's like, even just like the tiniest flame of divinity still left. If, if that can be protected from, uh, some of this darkness, that I think is why, I consider a lot of my sessions to be led with love
1: Mm.
0: because it's it's love is like kind of holding space for whatever is to be and to be able to work through it. And then this hope just kind of spontaneously um, comes forward Mm. and I don't know. Every time I read something about Jesus, that's that's kind of what I, I get. Is like you're in this like kind of like really dark place, but there's always this kind of hope that's there. But it's not it's not like Jesus was just saying, "Man, I hope this gets better." Right. It wasn't like that at all. No,
1: he's saying this. Yeah. So that's something that I think we we really miss in the Jesus story. It's like his whole point is that the fundamental nature of reality itself is grace and love, right? Like mm-hmm. that. And so when you ask that, when you think about that question, like what Jesus would do, you, you see how ironic it is when we, how many people have been raised in a tradition that professes to follow this Jesus figure, but that they're like riddled with like judgment and. Things like that, and they like, they I
0: think that's diss, they
1: internalize that tyrant. It is, yeah, that's what's interesting to me. I'm like, it's the literal antichrist, right? Mm-hmm. By fault, like, and this is where Young's work gets really interesting because Young understood the antichrist is the just the other half of Christ, right? The,
0: the, yeah, so on Cal- the half
1: of the archetype.
0: So, Calshed, he has this book called Trauma and the Soul, which is amazing. Um, but he talks about like. The devil as the fallen angel that is preventing you from being in your body Mm. right so it's disease dissociation um, disintegration so that's why he uses the word dis because there's so many words that Uh. um, act that um, are symbolic of what that archetypal energy actually does Mm. it Mm. is the devil that prevents you from being in your body because when when I'm working with clients right and I'm asking them where that kind of energy is that judgment criticism disbelief apathy all of that stuff hmm. it's always I've never had a client say it's in their body it's always in the head always hmm. and what where the where the truth is, is in the body even if the body is responding in a perceivably um uncomfortable way the response to dis is in the body Mm. and so it's like it's really interesting to track that
1: yeah yeah that is interesting it's interesting how by not i guess just by not fully embodying the archetype yourself i was just looking for it and i can't find it there's a great line in the red book where Young just says like basically like you think you can live this life without going down the path that Christ walked like you're nuts Uh, it can't happen (laughs) it's not going to happen you know and we have all of these and we have all of these like you know and then you think about today it's like we're have we having the argument or the questions of like do you believe this is this something you believe and it's like the great thing I love about Young's work is like you don't actually have to believe the theories but you still have to navigate the reality you know and
0: Right. So what do you think that Jesus's words actually meant? Like, what were they? Were they just law, like laws throughout time that no. we can follow? Because I, I kind of have no. this, it seems to me like they're ordering principles that help us navigate the chaotic world, but I don't know how you would say it.
1: No, I would say I would say it a little differently. That's what I think the Old Testament is, right? The Old Testament is laws that help you help us navigate the chaotic world. And if you think about it, from a perspective of coming to consciousness, right, starting to create laws to create order, so we can create culture, so we can create safety, so that we can manifest potential. Okay. all of that's really important, right? And so having laws is like adding structure to chaos. Okay, right? Because we're in a we're it, as humans. 2500 years ago in a pretty lawless world Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and so all of a sudden these laws start coming forth that help us take the chaos and manifest potential out of it Mm -hmm. and also they're just words they're just laws they're not so what jesus is is the underlying ethic of the laws right that's why he always says like the laws are fulfilled in me or he talks about one of the things we just read it's like um,
0: so he is the integration, the, being in integrity with those laws themselves.
1: He's yeah, he is what the laws were trying to put forth, but they get lost. You know, they get lost through they become stale, they become hardened, they become something that like because he's his whole thing, like his all the tension in the Gospels between him and the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees are like the religious leaders of the day right so just think of the religious leaders of the day that's your pharisees right and they're basically angry at him because he isn't following the laws to the letter he is he is the law like he is the embodiment of the underlying ethic that the laws are putting forward of
0: the chaotic world
1: yeah and so what in john fifteen twelve he says this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And that happens over and over and over. Like They're like, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And all these Pharisees are trying to catch him in like a catch 22 where he says something that'll get him in trouble, mm-hmm. right? And and he always reverts to saying the most important thing is that you love God and love people, right? And over and over and over. So what I think Jesus is saying is what his words are saying. You know, I'm, I'm struck by the one moment where this... Uh, chick is about to get stoned to death and so all these people are like around her and they all have rocks and they're about to kill her which is like just think about what that would be like right Uh, what kind of like world that would be like we (laughs) shame you like and then physically to death kill you slowly and then so all these people are getting ready to kill her and jesus walks up and you know he's like yeah so whoever here is without sin like let's we'll get her killed throw the first rock you know and he like kind of reaches down and he's drawing in the sand and then he looks back up and he's like where did everybody go and she's like they all left and he's like well neither do i judge you right and so now you what he's saying there he's like say he's he's helping you look through all of the cultural bullshit that you have about what's right and what's wrong and what's righteous and what's not and he's saying at the bottom of all of that if you can look through all of that the very the very substructure of reality itself is forgiveness is love mm. you know and so that's what I think he's doing but for us to get to that place for us to get to that reality right it means that we have to go through that sort of sacrificial process one of the things Rob Bell said in our conversation that has like stuck with me since is he's like you ever realize like that if you take Jesus's teachings to their fulfillment it it leads you past them right and so much of our culture is stuck in them right Mm -hmm. we still are we still pretty powerful yeah because if you actually love your enemies it dissolves the category of enemy Mm -hmm. right there isn't there is no more category of enemy if you love your enemies to the way that jesus said and that means that all of your self-righteousness and all the things that make you right and make them worse and make them less human all that has to be sacrificed all that has to die And so I just don't think... I think that what happens is we have this meme culture where we make ourselves feel good by by posting a meme about something. And before social media, we were still a meme culture. We've been going Mm -hmm. this way, right? Now we actually... Now it's like tangible. We like post it and we're like, oh, I did something, right? I posted my black square or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I'm doing something in the world. And the reason I, I think that the WWJD thing failed... Or went away kind of quietly. Everyone's just like, oh, so not gonna do that mm-hmm. anymore." Is because it requires the pain of reality. You know, it requires the pain. Oh, of... that's
0: too much. We went a little bit too far.
1: I think so because, like, <laughs> even think about how. And now I'm now I'm starting to stereotype a little bit. But like, I think anybody listening to this knows, at least in America, the predominant political party that is endorsing or is like the evangelical community the predominant political party that the evangelical community gets behind is has also been in the last 20 years really historically Mm pro-war right and so if you you think the wwjd thing really that surfaced in the 90s and so for the way that i think about it i'm like okay what does that say about our consciousness like where is it going what are we thinking and then you figure right as that sort of dies down we get into this 20-year war and it's very interesting because it's like well if you ask what Jesus would do lobbing missiles at the place he's from is probably not it do you know what I mean like the (laughs) Middle East you know it's just so interesting we're like we're riding the coattails of white Jesus and so that we can do the things that that make us feel better than that make us like whatever it is, right? However we how that, satisfy our position in the world and it's incongruent with this question.
0: And then as a result of that, that's like when technology and memes started to like really take off, right? Mm-hmm. In the midst of that war. Mm-hmm. So it's like we're seeing the consequences and the repercussions of going down that path.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: I mean... I guess, like, my question for you is, like, if I ask you, like, how do you live your life WWJD? Like, what does that mean for you?
1: Um, hmm. I don't ask myself that question, um, if I am going to be 100% honest.
0: But if I'm asking you now.
1: Right. Well, you know, in some sense, like, I did change my whole life, right? Like, I felt very gripped by this phenomena. I mean, right. If I go back two years ago, I'm living in Colorado. uh, I came out here to snowboard for a while and I was like running the Clarity Academy and just kind of like trying to understand where my career was going. And I read the Bible and I was reading the Gospels and it hit me that that I, the entire world of professional development wasn't saying one single thing that hadn't already been said by this person. Mm -hmm. you know and so then I was like okay well then why am I following all these other figures why don't I just go understand the root the source of what all of this is Mm -hmm. right and when you read the gospels especially the canonical gospels the first thing that happens is like Jesus like sees these people and he's like hey drop your shit and come with me just give drop your whole life and come this way and that's essentially what I've done and -hmm. it's been incredibly painful like I can't Put words into how painful it is because in that moment we did this episode and that I never aired it, but but in that following right, my God image had to die because I was raised with a very stuck God image, like a very static up in the sky, far away from me, demanding but not here kind of God image, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and so it's been this sort of like intellectual, spiritual, psychological adventure, I would say. Um, Yeah, but incredibly painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's the reality of the WWJD question. You know, it's like, because, and the reason I say that I don't ask myself that is because I don't know that I have the strength to die in the face of violence. You know, I don't know that I have the strength to be that self-sacrificial. I hope, you know, I really do. Because I, I'm like, have spent a lot of my life around death and stuff, and I, I'm, been really moved by the non-violence movements which are which get very silenced and nobody really knows anything about them but it's why you know i'm really drawn to figures like gandhi and figures like martin luther king because it to me it's like they're they're doing it you know they're like actually walking that walk at least in some respects in their life. um they're all human so they all have their kind of things but um yeah i don't know so so i don't know that i have the strength to just turn the other cheek and die but it's certainly the goal right it's certainly the goal that i believe so deeply in the foundations of reality that i my personal will doesn't need to assert itself at all Mm. right and so what that looks like to me and has been for the last couple years is like the prayer is for god's will you know the prayer is for the strength to endure god's will and not to wish reality to be different than it is because God's will is unfolding. If you believe in the divine, right, then it's happening. And so I think those are some of my initial thoughts. Yeah. Hmm. What about you?
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: You're kind of like Freud to me. Like, Freud basically <laughs> had, you know, like he. Do I look like him? No, just. <laughs> no, like, he basically is like, he thinks religion's like nonsense, essentially. He thinks that it's basically all projection.
0: I don't like, think it's nonsense at
1: all. I know. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, he doesn't come from a religious place, but when he talks about God, I'm like, oh, it's so interesting. It, like, there's something about it that, like, grips me a little bit. And and I have a – like, you couldn't you, – you, you know, I, I don't even use the word belief. It's like I just – it just is what it is. I can't go back to thinking the world is different than I already think it is. You mm-hmm. know, so my belief, so to speak, is pretty – firmly in there um, Mm -hmm. just because of a a set of experiences I've had but with you like I don't you know I don't see you like in scripture ever I don't see you like being someone that's like thinking about I don't know but then when you talk about God I'm like oh very interesting yeah that's amazing that's a good way to think about it
0: (laughs) yeah it's interesting because okay so you asked me this question same question I guess it is kind of like uh, you're a little bit like Young in the fact that he had a good bit of religious trauma in his youth. Mm-hmm. Um, like <laughs> you're, you're like living out your Red Book right now.
1: Well, yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: That's what reading the Red Book is so powerful for me because it's him like actually wrestling with all of that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. And I feel like this sounds kind of... I don't know, inflated, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of true. You can call me out if it's not true. But I I think there's like... I don't know. There's something about me being here that I I don't know. I kind of have this... I feel like I've been deeply blessed with this really optimistic perspective of life itself.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, That life is so beautiful and i i mean i've been through a ton of hard shit but like i don't know i think it's that to me just feels like grace or i've just been blessed with something that i i don't really have words for mm-hmm. because like whenever even going through this like traumatizing experience at the beginning of this year like there was something in my being that like knew that this was for a purpose. And that was, I never lost, I was, I never lost track of that. And so I don't know if it's what it is. Um, but I do feel like this, I don't know this. I'm, really butchering this part of the podcast but i mean you you watch me navigate the world from an objective perspective so i mean what do you what do you think like when you see me not get or have this optimism does it feel like bypassing to you
1: no so it's interesting because i start to you know i could think of you can really think of belief in god as this sort of ultimate optimism I mean
0: well enthusiasm right
1: well enthusiasm yeah the etymology is to be filled with God right because in theos Mm -hmm. but and so right exactly so I think because if you think about God as a from a value perspective it's a transcendent value it's the highest value so you would think about it as the highest good or the good as such in which all other goods are modeled after Mm -hmm. right and so then I heard Richard Rohr one time ask he was saying, you know, sometimes I talk to people and I think they tell me about that they're atheists. And I think, well, are you atheists or are you just cynical? Mm-hmm. You know, are you just hurt? Can you just not believe in, a, in the fact that something is good beyond what you can see right now? And so I think that your thoughts around positivity, like that is the indwelling Christ, right? That is the, if it's not bypassy positivity, because we have this weird positive, culture right do you now do I do that no I don't not at all I think that I think with you it's rude and I think that's why it moves me when you talk about God because it feels like resonant it feels like there's some truth in there um and there's been a lot of questions that you've asked me that have helped my own sort of walk with God I would say for sure um but yeah it can't be fake that's the thing that's weird like we have this like bless up culture That I'm Mm -hmm. like, if you really understood what it meant to be blessed, I don't think you'd use it in a cavalier way.
0: So what, because I use that word, what do you think it means to be blessed?
1: Well, I think what it means to be blessed is to, uh, is to recognize the actual reality that you are situated within. Mm -hmm. That there's nothing that you could possibly do that that could take you away from the love of God. That you're loved with a love that is so much beyond anything that you've ever known that you, there's nothing you could possibly do. The beginning of the Lord's prayer starts with our father who art in heaven. And that's so interesting because there's so many times where it's like, and thank God for that. Like, I mean, if you, if you, that like
0: makes me like cry. If
1: you, it makes me like
0: tear up. I don't know why. What's working through me right now.
1: Well, if you really, that's what I'm saying. It's like, if you really see it, if you really understood that the ocean that is grace is there's more depth and width and breadth to it than you could sure. ever imagine, <laughs> right? That you could, there's nothing you could do. That's what it means to be blessed. It means that you're in that, that you're in that narrative, that you're held by that.
0: Why am I getting teary? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, um, I think that it's because that's true. I feel like that's like truth hitting me and it's like F, mm-hmm. like to the point of tears because I'm like, in that moment when you were saying that, I was like, oh, I really do believe that with every single client that I meet that comes in. Cause like now my practice has really turned to where I'm like really working with trauma, people who have or navig- navigating trauma. And these people that come to see me are like been through really traumatizing experiences. And it's like, there's nothing in my being that, doesn't believe that each and every human being that comes to see me isn't doesn't have that same blessing somewhere Hmm. and i think that i don't know i'm just like maybe the tears are just a gratitude for like fuck i'm so thankful
1: i don't think you could heal people if you didn't have that i think that that you know if you think about the ultimate end state of christian theology for example is atonement right at one minute it's to come back into reconciliation with that belief with that thought with that knowing right Mm -hmm. because as you've talked about with this like with trauma with the things that happen to us they they keep us siloed from that they keep us apart from that they keep us separate from that it makes us feel as though that we're not worthy of that right and so to be blessed is to know in the almost ultimate sense that you are that so uh so healing to me like it couldn't happen I don't think unless you were offering people a route into that love
0: Mm. so something that like I was talking to my analyst about when I do like my somatic experiencing work for myself so I receive my somatic work um, is like I, I get this feeling that every time I've done it there's not a lot of and this just could be like my nervous system's orientation to the trauma I've experienced in the world, but there's not a lot of like this, like this cathartic grief um, to me. Like in my experience, every session I've had, it's been this, it's like this. The word that I use is like just deep lamenting for the things that I've had, I have experienced. Um, things that other people experience it's just like this kind of lamenting sadness what are your thoughts on like lamenting because that's associated with you know religion
1: yeah I mean one of the very first things Jesus says in the um, sermon on the mount is blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted I Mm. think that there's something fundamental about that like if you think about the pattern of the sermon on the mount it's the It's Jesus as the representation of the whole talking to the multitudes, right? Talking to the fragments, talking to the pieces. And so the pattern there is like, this is how you become whole. This is how you become integrated and move toward wholeness. And so I think when you think about it in that sense, it's very interesting because um, that's what happens sometimes, you know, in these contemplative sessions in the morning, you know, it's so early, it's dark. I'm like reading the same line over and over and over and i'm kind of like sitting with it and then this like immense grief and immense sadness will like crush me but there's you also in that experience i think you are and i this is why he's jesus said it i think right because in that experience the you get like a pinprick of well being, you know? And you know what's interesting is you talked about this was it yesterday with the idea of conscious and unconscious. Like if you are if you're really pleasure if you're experiencing a lot of pleasure consciously, then there's a lot of sadness growing in the unconscious. It's
0: pleasure and pain.
1: Pleasure and pain, yeah. And so then I think when you think about grieving in that if you think about it archetypally in that sense, right? If you're going through pain, then pleasure principle is also stacking up in the unconscious i think that you feel that
0: Mm, yeah
1: i think that's where the well-being comes from when you're when you let yourself actually grieve and feel what it is that you feel
0: and i think that it it's that playing itself out unconsciously but then when people consciously go to church or read the bible there's an element where the conscious mind can attach to what's happening unconsciously. And that's meaning, I think.
1: Say that again, the conscious mind.
0: So all these things are playing out unconsciously. Typically for most people who are have any type of spiritual bend towards life. Mm-hmm. I think it's playing out unconsciously for a lot of people religious or spiritual people but then when you go to church or read a passage that invokes that sense i think it is that conscious like recognition of what just happened that activates meaning Hmm. it is the conscious mind seeing that play itself out it's almost like where you take that pain and pleasure and they're like crossing they like meet in the middle and I think that that's meaning
1: Mm. yeah that's interesting I'd have to think about it I think just in the moment but that's really fascinating Yeah. yeah and you know this again I think as we are getting into some of these ideas and the depth that's behind some of these teachings and some of these ideas we then you know like take that and stack that up against the way in which it's been like we were talking this morning about how it gets sort of taught as a moral teaching because we don't really understand how, you know, we don't understand the the psychology of worship, for example, and why that's important to have a value that's supersedes all other values. And so because we don't really aren't good at that, we basically break it into a moral teaching, you know, and then that more the, your moral but teaching, the do the... this, don't do that, is just like
0: that's power, not love.
1: Right, yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. Yeah, that's power, not love. And it's also kind of
0: because love transcends all morality, I think. because if you're doing shadow work, Jung talked about doing like shadow work as really touching into the immoral parts of the quote unquote immoral parts of your being, even if you're not unconscious of it, or mm-hmm. conscious of them. Mm-hmm. And if you're really doing shadow work and in that integration of that immoral part of your being, love transcends that. like it's not even in the realm of making it this or that it is and it exists just as it is
1: but the this or that is what creates so much division for us internally right like i'm thinking about how you know i've said this before i think but like you know if you raise your kid like the way that i was raised right essentially you You raise your kid like a 7th century B.C. Jewish man. It's the, you know, or a a 3rd century B.C. Jewish man. Like, it's the craziest thing you could imagine doing to somebody. But the reason being is because we don't have a connection to the underlying principle there. The principles are so solid. The culture has changed dramatically, Mm -hmm. right? The culture is nothing like the culture that Mm -hmm. was. But the principles are important. The values, the underlying ethic is still important, and so in a lot of ways, when we take the message of Christ and we turn it back into a law, now we're, we are we are undoing the work that Christ actually did, which was to democratize the love that underlies the law in the first place.
0: That reminds me of what I put on Instagram today. Um, what it's Mark something. It's about like the soul, like What
1: good is it to gain the world and lose your soul essentially?
0: Yeah, and how I like how I thought about that was like this like soul loss is a traumatizing experience like trauma, basically. Mm -hmm. Like soul loss. And return the return of the soul to the body is like an excruciatingly painful experience. Mm -hmm. And it's just so interesting that like that that piece of wisdom was written to over 2000 years ago Mm -hmm. and we're here in this culture where it's just so many like soulless or or traumatized souls i guess is a better way to put it Mm. and i it just like really makes me wonder is like i don't think people understand how what dangerous territory we're walking ourselves into Mm. like i'm i'm like my goodness if we keep walking in this direction and thinking that science and laws and just strict logic is the way forward without going back to what you just said where like this wisdom that has come before us Mm -hmm. and like Geez, we could just turn literally towards last year and take some nuggets of wisdom from what didn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's like we can't even face the unconsciousness of last year.
1: Yeah, we can't turn around at all. We must go forward. We must go. Must and I'm grow, like, must go forward.
0: And I'm like, man, if we can't turn towards what's happened last year, we're certainly not open at this point to turn towards what's happened. 2000 years ago mm-hmm. and I'm like that to me scares the fuck out of me that like really feels like a problem
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but that's why I just tell myself daily but I also tell my clients constantly even when they're going through like really really tough integrative experience I'm like this is the most important thing that you're doing for the world right now mm. like it really matters and like not take like that is not A light statement I like mean that with every single ounce of my being it's like it's the most important thing you could do Mm. right now
1: totally well thanks for uh sharing this discussion we're about an hour in so we should probably wrap it up yeah um yeah like we said at the beginning if you guys are interested in having um these kind of deep conversations and join our book club it'd be great Mm -hmm. um have them with us probably much less theological but you know it's just something I think that this thing that we're touching on right now this this idea that we're so caught in the surface and so we have such an inability to touch the depth and to let it heal us
0: i don't think that that was a theological conversation perhaps not what does theos mean god to the logos of god yeah i i think that was psychological truly what hillman talks about being psychological the Logos of Soul. Uh-huh. I think that's what that was.
1: It's a, you know what? It's a different podcast because I, I could really, I have some thoughts on how psychology and like Psyche and Theos meet. So we can do that different time. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks so much for joining thanks, me. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,